And now, join Kevin Hart as he dives into the minds of some of your favorite celebrities. This is Gold Mines with Kevin Hart. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you already know what it is. This is Gold Mines, and you know what we do here. We get inside the minds of amazing, I guess you can say individuals, people, because it's grown, right? The mind awareness from Kevin Hart has grown and now my podcast allows me to tap into the infrastructure of all. I get to tap into it all. And today's guest, well man, what an amazing mind this is. I can't wait to actually talk to him. Such an interesting multi-hyphenate is what I'm going to call Right. I mean, the reason why I say multi-hyphenate is because after you've achieved so much and you've had so much success in so many things, well, you can't just refer to some as just one thing. I mean, goodness gracious, this guy here, he's an author, successful author. I mean, I think you're what? You're like a five-time New York Times bestseller at this point, Malcolm. So, I, I, I think I'm right, right? Malcolm, almost as many as I think almost I'm as right. many as you. No, no, not even, not even close, man. Not even close, dude. And not just an author. I mean, you know, a journalist, uh, an academic, a podcaster, a businessman. Not just podcasting, but you went and you took the the opportunity to take an idea, turn that idea into an entity, and now you basically house and embed podcast shows underneath an umbrella that you put up, which is dope as hell, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Malcolm Gladwell to the show. What's going on, Malcolm? Hey, Kevin. Good to see you again. What a what an intro! Did you like the intro? You that was written by my mother. That's that's how good that was. It was <laughs> you guys got in contact with her, and you said, "Can you do five minutes on your son?" <laughs> to my listeners, here's a little a little uh, Easter egg for you. Malcolm and I, we did a commercial together. Malcolm and I did a Audible commercial together years ago, and it was actually like one of the first of its kind. And you know, putting Malcolm and myself together in a room, allowing us to uh, not just be ourselves, but I guess you could say just elevate the idea of commercializing the world of audio, audio literature. Can I uh, uh, praise you a little? We spent two days, and after the yes. first day, I went home and my stomach was aching because I was laughing so hard. The whole set. Was laughing okay. So I, I remember I called up a friend and I said, you know, Kevin, that was the funniest day of my life. He can't be that funny tomorrow. It's got to end. So I go back the next day and you're even funnier. And I'm like, I can't, I couldn't, I'm supposed to be acting. I couldn't do it. I was just like cracking up all the whole time. And the cameramen are laughing and the, it was the craziest. I'd never seen like unvarnished Kevin Hart before. The one thing I will say though, so you're half the time. You're just riffing. Your riffs are so much better yeah. than what they wrote, and they didn't use any of it. <laughs> What's the point of bringing in Kevin Hart if you're not going to use his like his riffs? <laughs> It's a mechanism that I use to not only keep the day going, keep everyone energized, but just, you know, keep a comfortable environment, right? Yeah. I think when everybody's laughing on a set, it just creates the opportunity for more success. People are having a good time. If you're having a good time, you're going to want to do better work, more work, right? Nobody's yeah. complaining. Yeah. We're happy. So I can say that, you know, in me doing that, of course... After being introduced to you, uh, instantly I made aware of who you are, what you've done. You're from Canada. My question to you is, where does Malcolm Gladwell 
get the interest to start in the world of journalism or, or you know what, let's say just the world of being an author, right? Like how did the concept or idea hit you? When was it that you said, I think my journey is going to take me to the place of writing the things that I feel I, I know the most about that I feel other people can use as tools to succeed. When was it that that light bulb went off for you? Well, it's hard to say. My, you know, my mom is a writer. My mom mm-hmm. who's Jamaican wrote a book that was actually a bestseller in the sixties. It was a memoir about what it meant to be, wow, to grow up in Jamaica and what it meant to be black living in England in the fifties when it wasn't a very inviting wow. place for black people. And I remember reading that book when I was a kid and just being so in awe of the accomplishment and in love with this idea of writing books. So that was probably where the seed was, was planted. My mom is an incredibly beautiful writer. I would read things she would write and I would just think that's, it's like magic being able to express yourself so clearly and elegantly. So I think like almost everything in life, it starts with mom. You know? Wow. Brother, sisters, only child. What's the family Two situation? Two older brothers. And my dad, my dad's English. My mom and dad met in England when they were in college. And my dad was a professor, math professor. Wow. Okay. So you're in the household, um, I mean, wrapped around knowledge, wrapped around the higher level of academics. Was it something that was a hard stake in the ground in your house? Was there like a, a thing like where you guys were, hey, you have to read and I need to make sure that you guys sit down and you get your hours in before free time? Or was it something that you guys were able to pick up and just find a level of love for you on your own? My parents, are the, my dad has passed away, but were the most chill parents known to man. In fact, my mom, I went through a stage in high school when I didn't want to go to school for a while. And my mom would write me notes saying I was sick when I wasn't. She was like, fine with it. She's like, you should just do what you want. I would go with my dad to university and skip school, and he was totally fine with it. They perceived I wasn't doing it because I didn't want to learn. I was curious about stuff, and sometimes I wanted to go with my dad to school and hang out with his professor friends and go to the library at the university, and, and they felt that was just as good as going to school. So they were... Dude. I mean, well, technically it technically is. Technically it is. You're, you're just at a higher level of school. Yeah. You're not doing anything wrong. You're not going to school. You're going to college. My mom was friends with, <laughs> with the principal of my school. And she just basically okay. would call him up and say, you don't need to worry about Malcolm. He, he'll be fine. He's, He's okay. okay. Yeah. He's getting, he's getting a level of higher learning at this time. What was your mom's takeaway when you made the career choice? You know, I mean, I, I can only imagine how blown away she was that, okay, wow, my baby's going to follow in my footsteps. Yeah. I mean, as a parent, that's the dream, not the one that you force, but that you hope that your kids are in love with the thing that you do enough to try to do it on their own. So what was her feedback to you when you gave her the news? My mom, I think she's obviously proud of what I've done as any mom would, mom would be, but she's always made a, been very clear that and both my parents felt this way. They were not invested in how well I performed. They were invested in mm. how happy I was. I don't think they spent a lot of time, you know, I think it mattered to them that I have achieved this kind of success, but it's not the kind of thing where they're not at dinner parties boasting to their friends about 
how much money their son makes or how many books he sold or Got how big his house is. My mom's not because when I call her up, we, when I see her, she's like, if I look tired, why are you tired? Mm. <laughs> you, mm-hmm. know, you know, you, well well, you look very well. Like yeah. that's what she cares about. You know, my mom grew up in a very kind of warm, stable home. And my dad was the same way. They're, these weren't people who were terribly caught up in material things and with worldly success. Both of them are, were very, are very religious. They're very mm-hmm. much more oriented towards values and faith and that kind of stuff. You said both of them are very religious. Are you religious? I don't go to church, but I'm, I regard myself as deeply sympathetic to, to the ideas of faith and, and religious. Okay. Malcolm, you, your vocabulary is amazing. Like just in this short period of time, just some of the words that you just use. And I'm listening to the choices that you comfortably can make and, and how fast you can grab these words from your brain. I'm already in. No, come on. I'm, okay, done, I'm talking to one just, of the great uh, <laughs> verbal technicians of our age. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. Here's what I'm most intrigued by, right? Um, and I, I'll make this very clear. I think my listeners know this, but. You know, this is really a passion project for me. Doing this podcast, it really allows me to talk comfortably to people that I ultimately not only respect, but just that like I'm I'm blown away by what they've done. And I'm asking the questions that I want to know because I'm hoping that the listeners can have the appetite for the information that I want to have. And after getting it, you can do so much with it. The crazy thing that I've always thought about when it comes to the world of success attached to an author is that an author doesn't have the springboarded platform of television at the highest level or the box office, the movie, right? The author has a machine, a publishing company, and there's the idea and there's the book and there's the great presentation attached to the book. And then ultimately, it's the word of mouth attached to the project. It's the word of mouth attached to the book. And the word of mouth attached to your books are life-changing. Right. And people have adapted to to the things that you have written and people have implemented these things into their life. People have lived based off of the concept that you've presented. That alone to me is mind boggling. When you can have a feeling, a thought and it's well vetted out and you present it and people go, aha, that's it. That's what I have to do. What has that done for you, your mind, and ultimately, like, the forward progression of your career? Like, how have you adapted to that idea? Well, it's a wonderful, first of all, it's a wonderful thing. It's also Mm -hmm. a responsibility. You know, you realize once you have an audience, you acquire a responsibility towards them. You have to respect them. You have to Make sure you're not careless with the kinds of things you communicate with them. If people trust you, you can never abuse that trust. And that's something mm-hmm. I take very seriously. And, you know, I, I look around, all of us can look around and we can see people who abuse that trust. They, mm-hmm. they, they have some agenda that's not um, legitimate. And so that's sort of number one. The second thing is, though, that uh, it's incredibly freeing. I always tell the story about, I was in a coffee shop in Houston, fancy neighborhood in Houston, and this woman drives up in big Range Rover. She gets out. She's like one of those, you know, in her 
fifties or sixties, she's got the hair and the jewelry and like, she's dressed to the nine. She probably mm-hmm. just came from the country club, you know, and she comes over to me and she goes, you Malcolm Gladwell? I said, yes. She goes, I've read everything you've ever written. No, 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 no. She said, wow. I disagree with everything you say. And I've read everything you've written. <laughs> And I just thought, that's amazing. <laughs> I like wanted to hug her. I disagree, and I continue to read exactly. it. I continue to read everything that you write in hopes that I will someday agree, but I want to let you know yeah. that I have not agreed with you yeah. in anything. So that is what you need to know about that, me. I love that. I was like, that's my audience. She, doesn't, she didn't need to agree with me to enjoy it. And that's the mm-hmm. amazing thing. That's like kind of mm-hmm. like if you, it, this isn't really good, a good lesson about like critics. I don't know whether you read your, the reviews of your movies or your books, but it does nothing, does to, nothing me. to me. I have no interest yeah. in it at all. Never. But you should, to my mind, she's a perfect critic because she can separate her personal response to what I'm saying from her appreciation of what I'm doing. Right. So she's, mm. I'm saying things that don't jive with her. She's a rich white lady from, fanciest neighborhood in Houston. She's driving a Range Rover. She belongs to another world. But she can still say, wait a minute, there's something lovely about a wonderful or something touching, moving about the work he does that I can appreciate. That keeps me coming back for more. Love that. To me, I strive for that. Nothing makes me happier than reading a book or watching a movie or a TV show and saying, it's not for me, but it's really good. That's my, one of my mm. favorite modes. I understand, like, there's a real artistry and intelligence going on here. I don't think that all critics have this high level of logic and understanding that you're, no, they don't. That you're speaking no, about. No, that, that's the problem. Like, what you just said is, what you just said is profound, right? I think if the idea of criticism was explained at that level, then you would have a much different response from those getting critiqued. I think the side of slander or destruction attached to criticism, you know, to me, that's never been okay because artistry is artistry. Mm -hmm. And the attempt to do something and the completion of doing the thing that you attempted to do, that's always a W in my book. Those that put their mind to something and those that do the thing they put their mind to, you're, you're a winner in my book. Now, whether it comes out on the side of good, great, bad, or just, oh, that's a different thing. But when that critique is done, you have to make sure that it's said from a personal POV and that is just night to your liking, but other people should watch it and see what their takeaway may be. Yeah. And from what you just said, like, you know, the woman saying that to you, I think it's dope. It's like, look, I didn't like it, but I still support you because obviously I like your style. I like the tone. Um, Maybe the messaging is off at times, but I like you as an author and I support and buy your product because of that. Yeah. My disagreement is something separate and that's mine. I mean, I think that's really easy to understand. So there's two things I want people to say, critics to say, One is to make sure that every statement they make begins with, I don't think. Meaning Mm. that, so instead of saying, this isn't good, they should say, I don't think this is good. And what they mean is, for me, you know, my personal opinion is this is, and then the second thing I want them to say Mm -hmm. is, right now. One of the most things I've often observed when I listen to music or almost everything in my life, that there's 
in a ton of cases, something that I come to love is something that when I first heard it or saw it, I didn't like at all. And I think mm. that that's a crucial thing because people assume that you can tell whether you like something, whether you love something right away, and you can't, particularly if it's art. You got to sit with it. We did this big project with Paul Simon, the songwriter, and he's eighty years old. He just put out an album. And is he really eighty years old? Eighty years old. Wow! And the words of Kevin Hart, damn. (laughs) Two Kevin Hart's. Uh, I sat with him. I did forty hours of interviews with him when we did this book called Miracle Money. And then he put out this new album. So I went back and I re-interviewed him about the new album. So he sends me the album, and I listened to it the first time, and I'm thinking, meh. Then I listened to it again. I was like, wait a minute. And then I listened to it a third time. And I was like, oh my God. And then I listened to it a fourth time. And I was like, this might be my favorite Paul Simon album. It's beautiful. Mm. But I, I had to go start to finish four times to get there. And I think sometimes the things you have to spend some time with first and work at are the ones that really touch you. This wasn't some piece of candy floss that I heard. It's like, wow. That's cool. And then I forgot it the next moment. I didn't get it the first time, but something drew me back to it. And then by the fourth listen, I realized, oh, this is actually as good as an album as he has ever made. It's amazing. Um, it's called, you know what's funny? Yeah. We'll go. What is it? What is it called? Just for seven our listeners, songs. just so they can. Seven Psalms. It's, it's seven Psalms. It's, it's a masterpiece, but you got to listen to it more than once. You cannot, don't make up your mind after the first time. You know, there's a rule that I have with anything that I start, I have to finish. Mm-hmm. And whether it's a movie, whether it's a song album, an article, a full book, whatever it is, if I start it, even a script, if I start it, I have to finish it, right? Regardless of what I think in the beginning, if I feel, even if I feel like, this is a complete waste of time. Mm-hmm. I know that my interest is not in it. I have to finish it. Yeah. Because by the middle or by the end, to your point, my mind could be changed. Yeah. Now, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes I was spot on, right? But in finishing it, I give myself the opportunity to discover more. And that's what I took away from what you just said. Like It's the discovery of growth with Basically, giving yourself the opportunity to like really try, mm-hmm. right? Try to understand, try to listen, you know, take away, feel, whatever that thing may be, process it in full and give yourself a chance and an opportunity. I think that's when you walk away with a, a different concept. I completely agree with yeah. that. I, I used to laugh at my wife because we would watch movies and the movie would just come on. She'd be like, oh, this movie not going to be good. And I'm like, you didn't see anything yet. I'm like, nothing happened. Yeah, yeah. And you're on your phone. You're not even paying full attention. You can't do that. You have to watch. Yeah. You owe it. Fuck you. Owe it. Like you that. owe it to the person <laughs> yeah. who made it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Like at least like we started it because we're interested. Watch the fucking movie, and then at the end of it, we can then say whatever we want and have whatever judgment. But like as an artist, as a talent, I'm always on the side of understanding to any level of artist or a talent and the industry in general. For what you've done, right? I'll start with your first level of success. Your first book is, is it Outliers? No, tipping, Malcolm? tipping Out- Point is my first book. 
is your first Tipping one. Point. Which which one was the ten thousand hours? That's outliers. That was my fourth book. Oh, is it my third book? Yeah, third book. Okay, that's sad that you don't even know. That's how much success you've had. My second, my third. No, Kevin, it could I'm be my fourth. An it's a, was it my fifth? <laughs> was it my fifth? Okay, this ten thousand hours concept, right? Is something I gravitate towards. Yes, and I truly do understand the idea of putting a significant amount of time into the things that you choose to do or that you want to do. And when you do that, the result is never bad. Mm -hmm. It really isn't. You're kind of undefeated if you put the time in. You saying that's number four, why was it then that concept wrapped around? Where did that come from? Where did that discovery of input-output come from? Right. If you put this into something, this is what you're going to get out of it. Here's what people need to know. Where did that come from? There were two things that struck me as being really important. One was the more I talked to people who were successful, the more I realized that the stories they told about their own success were incomplete. In other words, they would start telling the story at the moment they got successful. Right. And Mm -hmm. they would leave out the beginning. And then when you ask them about the beginning, you would always discover that, oh, it took way longer than I thought. My favorite example was always Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, one of the great pop albums of the last 50 years. What number album do you think that is in Fleetwood Mac's history? I mean, I would probably go with what? Nine? Fourteen. Eight? Fourteen, I was close. See, most people say two. And so I tried to sort of understand that very often successful people almost forget about this, this period in the beginning where they're this period of immersion in their skill. So a couple of things come out of that. One is that once you understand how long it takes to achieve mastery, you realize how important it is to get help. Like I was interviewing this guy who was a chess player. Chess takes forever to master. And he was talking about he grew up in outside of New York and he would come into the village for years and he would play in the chess clubs in Greenwich Village. Okay. And I was like, wait a minute. You started going there. And he was like, I started going there when I was like eight years old. And I was like, well, how did you get? He lived in White Plains, like a suburb, far suburb near. He goes, oh, my mom would drive me. I was like, wait a minute. So you can't tell a wow. story about this guy's chess career without talking about his mom. If his mom doesn't drive him, he's not a chess grandmaster. If his mom doesn't get in a car like twice a week and drive an hour into the city and an hour home in traffic so his son can play in this chess club. And there's like versions of that story again and again and again. We're always leaving out the people who help you get there. And the other part mm. that we're not, that is important is it also means that you have to have patience with people. It sort of goes to a point we were just talking about now that if it takes 10,000 hours to achieve greatness and you catch someone who's only 2,000 hours in, you don't know where they're going to end up. You can't give up on them. They've just started. It was interesting. Like I'm a big, I know you're a big basketball fan too. So, Huge. In basketball, the most difficult position, as you know, in the, on the court is point guard. Point guards always take longer to develop than everybody else. You can't judge a 19-year-old point guard. He's not smart enough to understand the game in its entirety. It's not there yet. And he doesn't know how to fully coach and control the court at the same time of controlling and having the trust in his team. Yeah. The coaching concept to a point guard doesn't hit until a certain time. Yeah. A certain level of maturity. So you, You're an on-floor coach. Look at a guy like SGA. SGA 
we knew he was talented, but the Clippers trade him when he's like, whatever, 20 years old. Because they think, you know mm-hmm. what? We mm-hmm. think we'll do better. They trade him for Paul George. I think it was for Paul George. Yep. And I think we think yep. at the end of the day that Paul George is a better bet than SGA. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that SGA is going to end up, if not the equal, maybe quite possibly a superior player to Paul George. And also, he's only in his early 20s. It's like they only can get. I'm going to take. I'm going to take the over. I'm going to take the over. I'm going to take the over. Yes, I'll take the over. I'm with and you. It's because he's a point guard. You could see glimpses of that genius. I don't think we've even got the whole thing yet. Let's check back with him no. when he's 28. And he's, you know, he's controlling the entire game like a chessboard. That's, that's, you know, that's the thing about patience. You don't know if these guys, when they're still on their learning curve, you don't know where they're going to end up. I love what you're saying. I mean, Malcolm, that's exactly what I knew the conversation would be. I knew that you would have so many of these, like, these dope-ass fucking concepts and just theories that are so simple, but yet so profound. Like, something simple of people sharing the success stories, but starting from the success. And that's not the fun part. The fun part is knowing about the struggle. The fun part is, for me, hearing that your mother was an author and a bestseller, and your dad was a, a professor, and you got bit by the bug because of your mom and how amazing of a writer she was. That's where it started. That's where it developed. And after, of course, it developing there and you sticking with it, it's something that you stayed true to and you fell in love with. But it comes from your household. Mm-hmm. It comes from like the beginning of a journey. No story is a great story without the part of struggle. Yeah. The story that only has glitter and gold that shoots out of a cannon, it's not the same. I like the story with the low that then gets to the high that ends with the, oh, yeah. oh my. Yeah. More Gold Mines with Kevin Hart after this. Now more from Kevin Hart on Gold Mines. I wish I knew you when you were selling shoes. Oh my God, Malcolm. (laughs) Malcolm, man. I think about it all the time. I I think about, there was a certain amount of freedom, Uh of course, that you had back then as well. And I'm not sure if you feel the same, but from what you said earlier on, there's like a, there's like a side of like uh, responsibility that you said you feel like you have for the people that are supporting you. You don't take the support for granted and you know what you have given in the material that you provided. You never want to give less. That thing there that's in your head, that idea is something that it doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. So the freedom that you once had is just, man, I'm just doing this shit, man. I'm just, you know, fucking, I'm figuring it out. I'm having a good time. And then the success comes with it. You're like, oh shit. Yeah. All right, well, let me let me do it again, and then it's more success. And you're like, oh shit! Yeah. So, so now the idea of not wanting to lose that and stay in a good place, it presents itself more often. But the the young Kevin, man, I was a cowboy. Were you? I was a fucking did you cowboy. Sell a lot of shoes. You know what, Malcolm? I honestly did. I was a fucking great shoe salesman, <laughs> man. <laughs> I was. I've talked about it, Malcolm. I can sell the fuck out of a shoe, man. I really can. 
You know, I I know you've never heard, but I've there's interviews where I've broken down how, you know, I knew so much about sneakers from the materials used with polyurethane, EVA, condensed EVA. Uh, I can break down the economics of your foot, whether you needed something with forefoot protection, heel protection. Did you pronate? Did you subinate? Were your shins in good condition or bad condition? I can recommend the right running shoe, the right walking oh shoe. God. If you are a basketball player, I can recommend a three-quarter to a high-quarter. Like, literally. Can I make a comment about this? This is super interesting. So, one of the things, when we did our little commercial together, I spent a lot of my time watching you because I was very curious. Mm -hmm. And I observed, there's a couple of obvious things I observed. You had a lot of energy. I knew that. So, I was like, okay, Mm -hmm. that's the first thing. Uh, You're a pro. But I knew that. You, like, showed up, doot-doot, right? But the, here's the thing that I was fascinated by was when I was watching you keep this room in stitches for two days, you weren't just doing shtick. You were observing the room and responding to it and reading it and catching the rhythms mm-hmm. of the room. And you understood when people mm-hmm. needed a light moment. And when you were talking about how you were a great shoe salesman, you were talking about the same thing, only it was about selling shoes. Focused mm-hmm. on the person who was buying shoes reading them, making sense of them, responding to them, giving them what they need. It's the same skill. Only now, you know, Mm -hmm. now the audience is much larger and you're you're telling jokes, not selling shoes. But at its core, that's the kind of, that's the magic. And what's interesting about that is we assume when people are super successful and famous that they become, it's all about them. They're just doing their own thing. They don't need anybody. But it's not all about you. It's like you're watching. It's that kind of, and you told me it's an observing. It's, an obs- it's about it's observing. An observing sport. And you told me you were you mm-hmm. were testing out material. This is nothing about your energy, man. I don't know where it comes from, but we had like a twelve-hour day. Then you're going to go to some club and test out some material yeah. for the next day. But like, <laughs> yeah, I was I was working out. You were so you go from a day of observing the room doing to go and because you wanted to observe the audience as they listened to what you were saying, right? You are you are one thousand percent right. You're one thousand. That's what you're doing, man. It's like, (laughs) actually, you know, I'm sure you were a very good point guard, but the point guard's role is they are the observer, right? Read and react. You know what, man? I was a point guard. I played varsity 9th through 12th. But to your point, you know, I didn't get better until I got out of high school. When I got out of high school, it was like shit just started to click. Yeah. I was like, oh, shit, this is what I should have did back then. Yeah. Oh, man, I wish I had did this then. Oh, man, <laughs> I didn't take control of the games the way I should. It all clicked yeah. when it was too late, you know? <laughs> Wait, I, I have another question for you. I can't leave this just yet because we're talking basketball. So let's put together in L.A., give me the starting five, the five best basketball players in L.A.? In, a, in your world, in your world. Oh, my world. God. So you're the point. In my world. You're playing the point. I'm the point guard, and who do I want uh-huh. around me? Um, I'm going to go myself. I'm going to go... Kobe Bryant, I'm going to go Michael Jordan, LeBron James. And, you know, I think as when you're talking a big man, you got to go Shaquille O'Neal. You know, you're going with you're going with a dominant team that also defends. See, everybody talks about the scoring side of Kobe and Michael Mm -hmm. and LeBron. Shaq, but nobody understands they were also dominant defenders. Yeah. You know, these guys play both sides of the ball at all times. So, you know, I want a team 
that respects the word defense, not just offense. A lot of people can score in the NBA. There's a lot of great scores, but a lot of people aren't locked down defenders. And those guys, you know, at times, I mean, they've all floated on first and second team all NBA defense, as well as having scoring titles, championships, et cetera. Like these guys have gotten it done all around that basketball. Yeah, yeah. That basketball doesn't just have one side. It's a circle for a reason. Yeah. yeah. That's my five. Right, that's- Who do you take? Give me your five. I'm going to do my five, but I'm going to do no Americans. Okay. I like okay, it. Gonna, I like it. I'm not it. an American. I'm going to do the non-American five. And I'm going to argue that I, my, I like my it. non-American five is going to be better than your five. Ready? Okay. Ready? Okay. Go ahead. Akeem. Strong. Tim Duncan. He's from the Virgin Islands. Very don't strong. Call him, don't call him. Very don't. strong. Uh, who's my other? Well, I, got a, I have a little bit of a problem that I don't have a lot of guards. I'm going to play Luca. You, you don't have a lot of guards. I'm going to play Luca at my big guard. Luca's going to be your three. He's going to be my three. My point is Steve Nash, Canadian. Love it. Canadian. So Nash, Luca, Akeem, Duncan, and Jokic. That's actually a really good five. You know what I have? You know, That's a you know really what I have better five. than your team? I got some good three point shooting, but no, no, no. None of these teams are strong. You got good three point shooting. You're lacking on defense. Luca, Luca can't play yeah, defense. Um, Joker is a liability on defense. But I got Duncan and Hakeem. Uh, Duncan and Hakeem though are Duncan. Duncan and Hakeem are are great defenders. And you know what? Nash was a great lane defender, and Nash played the pick and roll very well. He was never a liability. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he's not like in the all time best defenders as a point guard. But Nash, he was never a liability on the floor. You never felt like. Fuck, they're attacking Nash and they're utilizing, you know, said thing to get Nash in yeah. single coverage to attack him. Like, he defended as By well. Way, and I mean, arguably, I, I got SGA uh, is Canadian. I got him too. I mean, listen, I love the five you put together. I mean, SGA, like you said, we haven't seen, well, yeah, seen. the tip of that iceberg and it's only going to get, yeah. it's only going to get bigger. Yeah. It's only going to get better. Malcolm, I love the fact that you're such a basketball fan, man. Like, I, I love basketball. I love sports in general, but I'm heavy basketball. Heavy. I'm actually, I'm number one as a track and field fan. Basketball is my second. It's really track that I know the most about. Track and field. I'm a runner. So, holy shit. Yeah, I'm a, what do you run? Uh, I at one point held the, in my age group, I held the Canadian record in the 1500 meters when I was a kid in high school. Holy yeah, shit. I was all Canadian. Distance guy. Yeah, distance guy. And I'm, you know, if you're half Jamaican, you, Jamaican, you got to like have, you got you to run. Sprinting. You, it's in the contract. It's in the, it's in the Jamaican the fun, contract. Fun when you're born Jamaican, <laughs> the doctor not only slaps you on the ass, he makes you sign an immediate piece of paper in the room that you have to at least run the hundred. Like under in 11 school. seconds. Minimum. My cousin in Kingston, <laughs> in elementary school, they had a sprint coach. In elementary school, they had a sprint coach. Oh, my God. That's oh, serious. my God. If you go running, last oh time I was in Jamaica, I go for a run. People are so happy to see someone running. They're like waving, cheering. <laughs> they just wait. And they may, they may run behind you. They may <laughs> yeah, run yeah, with run, you for a certain portion of the run. I had a, are you still like a casual runner oh, now? Pretty like serious. Just getting out and I, take a job? I race. I do a lot. I mean, I'm. I'm now a master, so I'm you know I'm in I'm in the upper age category. But oh yeah, I'm a dead serious runner. I spend like any marathons. No, that's too far for me. So I run five k's and miles. Too far. Um, I got three marathons, Malcolm, under my are you belt. Serious? I'm dead serious. Three marathons. 
Under my belt. Wow. Uh, Chicago, New York, London. Well, you should have run Philly. That's the fastest course in the country. Well, I didn't run it for a reason, Malcolm. I didn't say I was fast. I said <laughs> I have three marathons. You notice I didn't say I didn't say shit about times. <laughs> if if you ran if you ran Philly, you would you get mobbed. I can't do it. I can't. I can't run Philadelphia. I mean, I, I can't run another marathon. It's the most pain I've ever been in. But I've I've done them. You know, four hours is my that's my landmark, yeah. and I felt like that's respect. You and you and Oprah. I've stayed in that. You space. and Oprah, two leading marathoners. Yeah, I stayed there. <laughs> That's it. I, I've stayed there and I'm comfortable with being there. I don't need to do it again. I, I have it. It's in my resume that Kevin Hart has finished marathons as well. So I'm I'm done there. I don't need to do any more. Are you going to tell me your time or not? I did a four, a 401, uh, a 404. And I think I did like a, four, a 419 that's, or some shit. Kevin, that is respectable. No, it's respectable. Yeah. I finished. Like that's not walking. No, I wasn't no, walking. No, no. I was running. No, no. I was running the whole time. I'm impressed. I'm very happy with it. No, I, Thank you, man. That means hat, a lot, man. Hat is off. Here's the question. I got to ask you this question as we're approaching the end. And by the way, fucking such a strong conversation, man. But I still got more things that I'm curious right. about. Right now, do you know your total number in book sales? Do you know combined what you have done? Mm, probably 15, 20 million, maybe. Somewhere in there. That is in... Fucking sane. I'm guessing. I don't actually know. Malcolm Gladwell. But Kevin, you've sold. That is. How many have you sold? Come on. Come on. That is Malcolm. Not 15 <laughs> or 20 million. I got to take a second to just like. That is unbelievable that you have provided that much literature, that much audio, like original literature to the people today. Like. 20 million people supporting you throughout the years. That's insane, man. Like you got so much respect and admiration for what you're doing, what you've done. That's fucking incredible. 20 million goddamn like books. I know what I have to do to get inspired, right? right. Like for me, I got to like sit down and I got to go do shit. I got to go to dinners. I got to go to lounges. I got to travel. I got to go see some family. I got to go spend some time with some friends. I got to get back in the office. I got to get in meetings. Like I got to get the energy of the world. I got to get the energy of the people. I got to get out the house and I got to do it for a significant amount of time. And then I sit down and I just think about the things that I've been able to soak in. That's where I get the energy or our people watch. I go in like places where I can just be around people and see the shit that people are doing and the consistency that I'm seeing some of the same things in, right? That's my observing panel. Where are you pulling the incentive or where are you getting the incentive to sit down, do what you do and create the new? Where's it coming from? And maybe it's just sort of natural curiosity. I love, yeah, I love the idea of changing my mind about things or just thinking that something discovering that something I thought was boring is actually really interesting. That whole, mm -hmm. that feeling you have when you go, oh, wait a minute, there's way more to, to this. Or, oh, wait a minute, why did I, you know, how did I miss this? That's a feeling that, um, that feeling of discovery, I guess, is what I crave. Um, and I also, wow, okay. I love writing. I just think my idea of bliss is sitting in a is cafe writing. with my laptop just, writing. I was doing that this morning. I was the happiest 
I got little windows. Is that your work? I got, I, is that your workplace of choice, a cafe? I, I do that. Well, I'm right now where I have a, a two-year-old and a one-week-old. So I have little. Congrats, man! I have little, you know, I have little windows where I can work. <laughs> They're very small. And yes. So yes. When I get a window, yes. I just go to the clo- closest coffee shop and sit down and try and do a little. So I had a windows. I had a window. This the funny thing is, people ask me. They say, Kevin, why do you work out at four and five a.m.? Because that's my quiet time. <laughs> Because I have a household full. We, we're a household of six. My oldest is 18. My oldest son is 15, about to be 16. Then I got a five-year-old and a two that's about to be three. So it's always busy. Yeah. And and wherever dad's is where everybody has to be. So I have to do the same thing. You got your windows at home where you can get kind of your mental clarity. Yeah. And for me, mine's is mostly the gym. And then the office is the same as the house because I'm not, I can't just sit in the office. I'm getting pulled yeah. left and right, meetings, meetings, Kevin, meetings. I so you had a, I, I relate. You had a child that young, you know, <clears throat> I've had this idea. I had this idea for writing a children's book, and now I think that we should do it together. It's about um, a family. Let me let me let, let me give you the. Pitch. I don't need to know the fucking title. I don't care what it is. I'm in. Let me give you the pitch. <laughs> it's a family of Jamaican cats who are smuggling a high-end catnip into the United States. So it's like... Holy shit. There's a, the lead cat is called Buster. And he, <laughs> his family, they got, they got a big catnip plantation up in the hills. And they try to get it past the, the CEA, which is the Catnip <laughs> Enforcement Agency, is trying to block the importation of, of high-end quality Jamaican catnip into the United States. <laughs> Malcolm, Malcolm, I do not threaten me with a good time. Listen, you nail the structure. I will nail the funny and the I grounded think, think you, side of kid approach with you. It. I think you're Buster. Will you be Buster? You got to be Buster. I'm Buster. I'm in. Malcolm, what are you talking about? <laughs> you will get a text from me later in the day just so you can. So when we both sneak our quiet times, we can talk and figure it out. I'm fucking in. Are you kidding me <laughs> to have an opportunity to create yeah, no, was, with the legend himself? No, what are you talking it'll be so about? Much fun. Absolutely. It'll be so much fun. I got a Absolutely. whole world. They all hang out at a club uh, on the beach called the Mousetrap. And they're like, they have a whole circle and they move together. They all they drive pink Escalades, and they make their. Oh my it's god! Like, it's a whole world. Oh my it's, god! It's, it's a whole world. Listen, I just sent my book guy. I just sent him a text. I said, Malcolm and I want to talk and discuss a funny idea. <laughs> connect us ASAP. Look, as we're talking, I okay, said, good. connect us <laughs> yeah, ASAP. Exactly. You're, it's is done. This is done. Malcolm, you will have my cell, and you and I will talk. See, ladies and gentlemen, that's an accident. But that's the beauty of gold mines. You get the talk and you get the vibe, but then there's always a discovery. And sometimes there's a connection. God damn it. Malcolm Gladwell is not only a legend, but he's just a good dude. And I love the fact that you got to talk here comfortably, man. You got to let your shoulders down. And it wasn't just some structure and these questions that you got to answer like this and be like this. You get to fucking laugh. You get to you get to open up. You get to be yourself. And at the same time, you get to drop some gems. That's what gold mines is about. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope that you got what I got. And that's some just good information. And I hope that you also... 
take the time to further educate yourself on the world of Malcolm Gladwell and the work that he's done. Malcolm, I cannot leave here without mentioning just what you're doing in a podcast space again. My podcast is is Revisionist History. And, and then the company is called Pushkin, Pushkin uh, Industries. Okay. And we do a wide range of podcasts. But I would encourage people to check out Pushkin, check out my podcast. So we got a big uh, thing coming up, airs in uh, August, late August, about um, gun violence. Six, six mm-hmm. part series, which is uh, some of the most important stuff I've ever done. Um, so that's that's what's coming up. Just give a, a one liner just to explain the revisionist history. Like it's Kevin, it's whatever. It's just fun stuff that it, it's just a it's just a it. name that I give to whatever strikes my fancy. We did a thing once where we were convinced that the Disney's The Little Mermaid had a really terrible ending. So oh we God. rewrote the ending, and I got Jodie Foster. And I got a whole bunch of other like big names and we rewrote, I got Britt Marling. I don't know if you know her. She's, she rewrote the ending. And then we got all these big name people, Dak Shepard, Dalkin, and we performed it. <laughs> and that was what the show was, was how we just thought, oh like, my God. if you go through that little mermaid, it's like, it's terrible. We fixed it. And you fixed yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. You did, you did, you did Harold's work. Yeah. You fixed yeah. it. I love yeah. it. I fucking love it. Ladies and gentlemen, this is gold mines. You already know what we do here. We get inside the minds of amazing people. Today was no different. Today was Malcolm Gladwell. Thank you, Malcolm, for an amazing episode, man. I appreciate you. Peace. Gold Mines with Kevin Hart is a Sirius XM and Laugh Out Loud radio production executively produced by Kevin Hart, Ty Randolph, Mike Stein, Brian Smiley, Eric Eddings, and Eric Weil. Additional production from Elise Ellis and engineered by Marcus Hamm. 